I'm sure you've seen these lists come across the internet, these lists of actual bulletin bloopers, mistakes that the editor missed that slipped into the church's weekly announcements. Have you, have you seen these things? Uh, here's just a couple, of an exa- a couple of examples. Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Don't forget your husband's. Here's another one. Weight Watchers will meet at 7 p.m. at the First Presbyterian Church. When you arrive, please use the large double door at the side entrance. Here's another one. Today's choir special. Angels we have heard get high. (laughs) Well, here's one for you. The pastor will preach his farewell message, after which the choir will sing, Break Forth into Joy. Well, in John chapters 13 through 17, Jesus delivers his farewell message to his disciples. But rather than break forth into joy, they become deeply disturbed. They get confused and perplexed and troubled. In this one night, Jesus has turned their notions of greatness topsy-turvy. He's talked of his departure. He he says Judas is a traitor, and he claims Peter will deny him. In chapters 13 through 14, four different disciples, Peter, Thomas, Philip, and Jude, are so disturbed that they have questions for Jesus. The disciples are desperate for some encouragement, and Jesus provides it in chapter 14. The good news begins, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Here Jesus brings them good news. He turns their eyes toward heaven. You know the Greek word translated mansions or mone means rooms. Just rooms. It's from the root mino which means to stay. So it could be translated staying places or dwelling places. Monet is simply a place to stay. I want to kind of clear up a misconception for you tonight. You know, we think of our mansions in heaven. Well, what do we think of when that comes to mind? When I think of a mansion, I envision the Biltmore House in Asheville or the Hearst Castle out in California or the or the penthouse suite in the Trump Tower in New York. At the very least, you know, an estate house in some elite neighborhood. But Jesus doesn't promise us something off of MTV cribs. You know, a swimming pool and a home theater and an indoor gym aren't standard amenities in heaven. No, when Jesus promised us a mansion, he was promising us something much more special than a luxurious and in a large-scale house. He was saying we would always have a place to stay. That's what it means to have a mansion in heaven. We have a staying place. We're going to get to stay with God. There's a room in God's house just for you. And that excites me. Robert Frost wants to find home as a place where no matter where you've been, when you arrive, they have to take you in. Home is a good place. 
I've heard it said, home is where you're treated the best and complain the most. That's probably true. For me, the ideal home is where you can let your hair down and be yourself and chill out and be loved for who you are. Home is equivalent to warmth and love and intimacy. Quite frankly, I think it would be more like hell than heaven for God to stick me all by myself in some huge cavernous stately mausoleum. Especially if part of my responsibilities was to mow the 40 acres that went with it. Oh my, that's not my idea of heaven. You know, there's an old maxim, home is a man's castle, but an actual castle might be a hassle. John Payne, though, once put, Amid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. It's incredible. We have a home, and our home is a room in God's house. You know, built into the outside walls of the second temple, there were 38 chambers. These were the dwelling place for the priests and for the Levites. At times, they were allowed to stay right there in the house of God. In fact, in the Middle East, even today, children, when they marry and have families, it's their custom to still stay in the Father's house, to still have a room in His tent. And this is the imagery that Jesus is conjuring up for us. When He says we have a mansion, He's not talking some spacious, custom-built estate. He's talking about intimacy and fellowship. When we get to heaven, we get to move in with the Father. We get to move in with our God. In heaven, we'll live in God's house. We'll eat at God's table. Hey, we'll hang with God. We'll chill in the Father's crib. I like that. On earth, Jesus was a carpenter. Perhaps the kind that built homes. It's interesting that in heaven, He's also involved in the same trade. He's preparing for you and me a place for all eternity under the Father's roof. I get excited about that. Today, Jesus is in heaven, and He's working hard on, for us a place to stay. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus promises to come again and receive us as well. You know, you think about this earth, how beautiful it is. And it was created by Jesus in just six days. He's been working on our home in heaven for the last 2,000 years. Can you imagine how beautiful and how exquisite and how wonderful it's truly going to be? In the spring of 1942, General Douglas MacArthur was commanded by President Roosevelt to withdraw from the Philippine Islands. A Japanese takeover seemed imminent. But before MacArthur left for Australia, he promised the Filipinos, I will return. MacArthur was criticized by many Americans for egotistically phrasing his promise in the first person. I will return. That's not how the Filipinos took it. They trusted in the general's promise. In fact, it boosted their morale throughout the enemy's occupation. They knew MacArthur was a man of his word and that he wouldn't break a promise. And likewise, when Jesus left this earth... He made us a personal and powerful promise. He said, I will come again. And that promise has been boosting believers' morale for the last 2,000 years. For like the Filipinos in World War II, we also are living behind enemy lines 
And Jesus has made a personal promise to us that he's going to come back. He's going to come again. That promise should keep us from losing heart. I like this line from an old hymn. It goes, who could mind the journey when the road leads home? You know, when the road of life gets rough, when you run into some potholes and some roadblocks, just remember where the road leads. We're headed home, guys. Jesus has made us a promise. And he doesn't go back on his word. And for your information, on October the 20th, 1944, MacArthur did return. He defeated the Japanese and he liberated the Philippines. And likewise, one day soon, Jesus the Christ will return to planet Earth to liberate us from sin and Satan and death. Well, verse 4 tells us, Jesus says, And where I go, you know, and the way you know. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Now, Thomas is basically asking for a road map here. He says, I want my GPS. I need to plot these coordinates here. He's thinking of a local destination. Heaven, though, is out of this world. And Jesus answers him and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And here's a basic tenet of Christianity. Christianity is not a philosophical system or a code of ethics, or even a set of doctrines. Christianity is a person. You see, you don't become a Christian by following Jesus' teachings, per se. You become a Christian by following Jesus Himself. Jesus doesn't just show us the way. He is the way. Jesus doesn't just speak the truth. He is the truth. Jesus doesn't just give us life. He is the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. God's way is revealed. God's truth is received. God's life is released. When we come to Jesus, He is the way that keeps us going. He is the truth that keeps us knowing. He is the life that keeps us growing. Hey, all we need is in Jesus. And notice too, Jesus is not a way or a truth or a life. He is the way and the truth and the life. He's not one of many roads that lead to God. He is the only road. And he puts it plainly. No one comes to the Father except through me. But you argue, Sandy, that sounds pretty narrow-minded to me. And you're exactly right. It is very narrow. Jesus said, narrow is the way. You think, how can Jesus make such an exclusive claim? Hey, by the way, have you noticed how open-minded the IRS happens to be? Have you noticed this? As a matter of fact, this year I'm thinking about just estimating my income. I'm not even going to look at the W-2s and all. I figure a few thousand dollars here, you know, up or down, no big deal. When it comes to dependence, I've decided this year I'm going to round off to the nearest ten. And when I figure my, actually figure my tax, I'm not even going to look at the tables. I'm just going to kind of, you know, put down what seems fair to me. You know, if you're an IRS agent now, please, I'm, I'm just joking. Everybody knows the IRS doesn't budge. It has its rules. It's black or white. It's right or wrong. I like what the heavyweight boxing champ Joe Lewis once said. Somebody asked him, he said, who hit you the hardest during your ring career? And Lewis replied, Uncle Sam. Yeah. 
My point is, is that there are lots of issues in life, lots of issues, like the tax code for just one, that are not open to interpretation. They're not open to negotiation. They are very, very narrow. And the door to heaven is one of these issues. It's either or. It's heaven or hell. It's sin or salvation. It's Jesus or judgment. It's either right or left out. One of the two. You know, in John 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. You know, catch this. Jesus is the only person who can truthfully make that claim, that Jesus came down from heaven. When you were born, you didn't come from anywhere. You kind of came from your mom and dad, I guess, but you started in your mother's womb. That's where you started. That's where you originated. You didn't come down from heaven. You know, Jesus is the only person who came down from heaven. That means he's the only person who knows the directions. You know, a lot of people claim to know the way to heaven. Some say they've even been transported there. But only Jesus was sent from heaven. Heaven is Jesus' hometown. Now, who are you going to trust to figure out how to get there? I'm going to trust the guy who came from there. I'm going to trust the guy... Who, who should know the route back home. And there's only one person who qualifies. That's Jesus. Verse 7 tells us, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And here's the longing of every human heart, whether conscious of it or not. Show us the Father. This is what every person longs for. Show me God. Show me the God who created me. No one is satisfied until they know the God who made them. Jesus said to him, I Have I been so long with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? And here Jesus clearly asserts his deity. Jesus was God incarnate, or God in human skin. Those separate persons, the three members of the Godhead, are of one substance. To see Jesus was in essence to see the Father, for both Father and Son are fully God. Philip had walked with God down the grassy paths of the Galilean, Across the dirt roads of Judea, he had walked with God for three and a half years, and yet, sadly, it had never dawned on him. Verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Both his words and his works testified that Jesus was God. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Now now one of the reasons the disciples were so depressed over all this talk of Jesus' departure is they interpreted it as a setback for their movement. Think about it. Lazarus' resurrection, Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, 
These events had sparked interest. Momentum was building. And now Jesus is leaving? He's just going to depart and walk away from it? I mean, this is like loading the bases for Chipper Jones. And yet, instead of walking to the batter's box, Chipper decides there's something else he needs to do. He's got another appointment, and he walks out of the dugout. I mean, why would Jesus leave now? In fact, how could they continue without him? Jesus just said, believe me for the sake of the works. His miracles had been impressive. The disciples had witnessed wonder after wonder. And yet now Jesus is predicting that they'll perform greater miracles? How can this be? But when the Holy Spirit pours out, is poured out, everything changes. In fact, you read the book of Acts, and this is exactly what happens, doesn't it? In terms of quantity, these 12 disciples scattered around the world, powered by the Holy Spirit, will accomplish more works than this one man fixed in Israel did. A church empowered by the Spirit had a greater scope and a greater quantity and a more miraculous impact across a larger area of of the world. And here's the promise, verse 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. For if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And the key phrase here governing our prayers is in my name. In biblical times, remember, a person's name characterized their nature. And so to pray in Jesus' name was to pray in accordance with his desires. It was to pray in harmony with his will and his nature. It was to synchronize with God's desires. Also pay attention here to the Father's concern. He wants to glorify the Son. And thus the prayer God answers is the one that accomplishes His goal. That only makes sense. Does the aim of my prayer glorify Jesus? If it does, the Father will answer it. You know, prayer is our opportunity to be creative in terms of the means and the methods and the what's and the how. But all prayer has the same objective, the same why. To glorify the Son. That's the purpose of prayer. But Jesus says in verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And remember from this morning, it's not enough to love someone in ways that are convenient for you. True love will love that other person in the way they want and need to be loved. And this is why Jesus states, If you love me, here's how I want to be loved. Keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper that He may abide with you forever. Now in sports, there there are players who specialize in coming off the bench. In basketball, there's the guy known as the sixth man. In football, it's the nickelback. In baseball, it's the pinch hitter or the relief pitcher. These guys make a living at being substitutes. They're the super subs, you might call them. And here's why Jesus' departure is not going to be a setback. For a supernatural sub is going to take his place. You see, Jesus was a man with a lifespan. But the Holy Spirit could take his place and abide with the disciples forever. Everywhere and for all times. Notice the word translated helper. It's the Greek word parakletos. 
which means to come alongside to assist. In Greek courts, the parakletos was an attorney appointed to take over and head up the case of a client. The Holy Spirit is our court-appointed attorney. As Jesus is our advocate with the Father, the Spirit has also been sent to assist in our representation. In, in other words, and this is for, for this is going to date me, I, I know, but and probably date some of you, but you know, if Jesus is our Perry Mason, then the Holy Spirit is our Paul Drake. You, you get it? Perry Mason and Paul Drake? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Sandy, you're really old. I know. Anyway, here's my best illustration. Here's a better illustration of the Holy Spirit right here. He's the White House Secret Service agent. Have you noticed this? That everywhere the president goes, he's surrounded by these bodyguards. These are the guys that are willing to take a bullet for the commander-in-chief. You know, if I looked at you through spiritual eyes, I would see you, but then right next to you, I would see this guy wearing black glasses, sunglasses, and this dark suit, and he's got this little earpiece. And if you look real careful, he's packing. That's the Holy Spirit. He's your bodyguard. He's your helper. He he comes alongside of you to assist you. Notice, too, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another helper. The word translated another means another of the same kind. In other words, the Holy Spirit took up where Jesus left off. He was of the same kind of Jesus. He had the same goals, and he had the same methods, and the same tactics, and the same heart, and the same nature as Jesus. You know, when the Holy Spirit took over, no one had to put up one of those under new management signs. Nothing really changed. You see, God intended for His disciples to have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit that they had had with Jesus. Of course, without the physical constraints that limited Jesus while on earth. And of course, this would require the disciples to pray and to have faith and to live spiritually oriented lives rather than physically oriented lives because obviously they weren't going to be able to to camp with Him and and touch Him and, and speak to Him audibly. They were going to have to relate to Him spiritually, and through faith, and through prayer. But, in God's mind, nothing was supposed to change. Because those modes of communication are just as real as physical contact for those that are, that are spiritually attuned. There's no doubt the twelve disciples were going to miss Jesus. But the team was going to continue to be on a roll because the Holy Spirit was coming off the bench to take His place. And that was good news. In verse 17, Jesus introduces the helper. He calls him the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, the Holy Spirit is with you prior to your conversion. He's the one that convicts you of sin. He's the one that confirms the claims of Christ. Then once you embrace Jesus as your Lord, That's when the Spirit moves in you. He's first with you, but then when you're saved, He comes to dwell in you. God's Spirit begins to inhabit your spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is the witness in our spirit that we are child, children of God. Here's what the Holy Spirit does for you. He does so many things. He, he reveals the presence of God in your life. When you sense God's presence, that's the Holy Spirit. He communicates the peace of God. He releases in your life the power of God. He bestows upon you gifts from God. He is the catalyst that bears fruit for God. He provides the comfort of God and administers the correction of God and teaches us the truth of God. This is why we call Him the Spirit of Truth. Oh, the Holy Spirit. You want a relationship with the Holy Spirit. You want to live and walk in the Spirit. He picks up where Jesus left off. And we have the same relationship with the Holy Spirit that the disciples had with Jesus. The only question is, are we accessing that relationship? Are we trusting Him and talking to Him and listening to Him as the disciples listened to Jesus, talked to Jesus when He was there with the Holy Spirit's with you? You can't see Him, maybe, but He's still there. You just need eyes to see. You just need faith to believe. But don't expect your unbelieving friends to understand this. They might think you're nuts. Jesus told us, the world neither sees Him nor knows Him. The ministry of the Spirit is an enigma to our tangible world. The world is clueless when it comes to the things of the Spirit and interacting with the Holy Spirit. And so don't look for comfort from the world. Trust in the Lord. This is why you need to go back to the Word. This is how you learn to walk in the Spirit. You abide in His Word. Well, in verse 18, Jesus promises... I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Jesus was leaving, but the Holy Spirit would be like a father to us. You know, becoming a Christian to me is like enrolling in a big brother program. You know, expect the Holy Spirit to be your big brother. To be there always for you, 24-7. He takes you places. He opens, you can open up to Him and talk to Him. He shows you love. He gives you guidance. He's a big brother. Jesus says in verse 19, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You know, in Spanish, you can part company and you can say adios, which means goodbye. Or you can say hasta la vista. And that means See you later. Well, this isn't an adios, Jesus is saying. This is an hasta la vista. He's not saying goodbye to him. He's saying, I'm going to see you a little later. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice the connection here between obedience and revelation. Jesus reveals his will to those who are inclined to do it. Makes sense. Well, verse 22, Judas, now not the Iscariot Judas, but the other Judas, Matthew 10, verse 3, also calls him Thaddeus. This Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? You see, the Jews expected the Messiah to be a global leader. To, to be someone who would sort of gain a worldwide audience. And this Judas, he's a thinking man. 
and he's wondering if Jesus is the Messiah, then why is he limiting the news of his ministry to just 12 Jews, mostly from Galilee, mostly fishermen? Why isn't he commanding a worldwide stage? Well, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. What a cool promise this is. Do you hear this? If you love Jesus, both the Father and the Son will take up residence in you. That's pretty good company. God promises to dwell in the heart that loves him. Now, on the surface here, Jesus never answered Judas's question, did he? I think the implication to Judas is that it's none of your business to whom the Father reveals himself. He reveals himself to whom he chooses. And he chooses to reveal himself to the heart that loves him. Verse 24 He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. If you say you love God, but disregard God's words, I mean, who are you kidding? You don't really love God. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. And this is so great. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to supply us with supernatural recall. You need this more and more the older you get. Supernatural recall. In other words, He aids us in our memory. At crucial moments, He'll bring to mind an important truth that I tucked away earlier, but I can't recall it at that moment. Lord, help me. And he, and he'll bring that back to my mind. He'll bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus said to us. He, he's so good at that. Have you had that experience before? Where you were in a crucial moment and, and the Holy Spirit just brought it back to mind. Well, Jesus goes on to say in verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. But what the world calls peace is merely the absence of conflict, I'm afraid. I've heard it said, peace is the short interval of time when everyone stops firing to reload. That's probably accurate. But the peace that Jesus brings is this wonderful, all-encompassing assurance. The peace of God it is a harmony. It's a synchronization between humble little you and the incredible almighty God of the universe, suddenly you feel in sync with God. And it's just an amazing, mind-blowing experience to feel that you and God got this thing. This is great. I'm at peace with God. I'm in sync with God. This is amazing. God's peace is an inexplicable rest. God's peace is that, that moment when there's no fuzziness, when there's no static on the line, when there's just sort of a total clarity of spirit. Oh, there's nothing like experiencing the peace of God. The world may be falling apart. Everything around you may be crumbling to pieces. 
But there's just this clarity of spirit. There's this firmness in your life. There's this confidence that you have. And it doesn't come from you. It comes from God. That's his peace. Verse 28. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now understand when Jesus says, my Father is greater than I, He is not denying what He said earlier, that He and the Father are one. The Father and the Son are of the same substance. God the Son and God the Father are one God. When Jesus addresses His disciples here in verse 28, He's talking about chain of command. When He says, the Father is greater than I. You know, the Father is greater than Jesus in terms of role, not nature. Jesus was voluntarily submissive to the Father. It was His role to be submissive, to be the servant, the suffering servant of God. doesn't mean He was less than God in the sense of quality or character or nature. It means that He, he was just the servant. God was the, the master. Think of marriage. Here's a great illustration to help you understand this. Think of marriage. In fact, think of my marriage. Now, I am the head of my home. Make no mistake about it. Kathy is submissive to her husband. But anyone who knows us recognizes that Kathy is superior to me in just about every way imaginable. Except maybe jar opening may have got her there in jar opening. But if Kathy ever said, Sandy is greater than I, you'd know what she was talking about. She's talking about chain of command. She's not talking about smarts. She's not talking about looks. She's not talking about wisdom. We can go right down the list. Oh, wait a minute. Kathy's far greater than Sandy in all of those areas. No, Sandy's greater than I. She's talking about chain of command. Not attributes or nature. And the same was true of Jesus. Don't get confused here. Jesus was submissive to the Father, but that doesn't mean He was inferior. The fa- Jesus said, the Father and I are one. Now verse 29 tells us, And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. I love that. He's coming, but he got nothing, nothing in me, nothing on me. Satan is going to come in the person of Judas. And Satan will attempt to keep Jesus off the cross. We talked about this last week. But he has nothing that appeals to Jesus. Nothing that would even tempt Jesus. You see, here is the secret in overcoming Satan, in overcoming temptation. For a temptation to be successful, it has to appeal to a desire within you. Thus, guard your desires. Guard your heart. If what Satan has to offer is not what you want, then the temptation bounces off. We all need to be able to say like Jesus did, He's got nothing. He's coming, but He's got nothing I want. Notice one other point here. Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. You know, when God created Adam, he gave him dominion 
or authority over his creation. When Adam sinned, he lost that dominion. It fell into the hands of Satan. And Satan has usurped that authority ever since. Today the world is still under the sway of Satan. Jesus here admits that Satan is the ruler of this world. And this, of course, sets up the conflict of the ages. Satan, the ruler of this world, is going at it with Jesus, the ruler of the kingdom of God. We know who will win in the end. Verse 31, But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Which ends this conversation in the upper room. The talk now that follows in John 15 and 16 probably occurred as they walked from Mount Zion. If you start over in the left-hand part of the picture and go all the way to the right, this is the direction that they walked. In the top left down to the lower right, they go from the, the top of Mount Zion where the upper room happened to be located and situated. They then go down Mount Zion. They then cross the Kidron Valley. And then they kind of go by the Temple Mount, and then they go up to the Mount of Olives, and there they find the Garden of Gethsemane. And what occurs now, the teaching in John chapter 15 and 16 occurred as they were making that walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's interesting. All along that path, guess what they were passing? They were passing these vineyards. There were little vineyards planted all over as they were walking that path. And those vineyards become the background For John chapter 15, one of Jesus' most vital teachings, I like to call it, heard it through the grapevine. You know, vineyards dotted the landscape all over Israel at the time of Jesus. In addition, not far from where he was walking, on the doors of Herod's temple were engraved a pair of golden vines. Old Testament passages like Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80 and Jeremiah 2, and Ezekiel 19, and Hosea 10. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel was symbolized as the vine of God. Israel was to be God's vineyard. God expected fruits of righteousness from His people. And yet, sadly, in the case of Israel, this fruitfulness never materialized. Israel became a barren vine that God promised to punish by uprooting from His vineyard. This is why Jesus, remember, cursed the fig tree just a day or two earlier. It too was a symbol for Israel. He cursed the fig tree because Judaism was on on the way out. Spiritually, it was a dead religion. It was incapable of producing good fruit or good grapes. And in its place, God had planted a new vine, the true vine. In fact, it may have been the silhouette of the barren fig tree, the shadow that became the background for this teaching. Here Jesus identifies the true vine in chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Remember God's initial plan was to graft the Gentiles into the vine of Judaism. And yet Israel proved barren. Legalism and ritualism and hypocrisy had choked out the life of the vine. And a change was needed. And so God planted Jesus in Israel's place. Today, people become a part of God's vineyard by being grafted into a person, into Jesus. Not the nation, but into a person. In Christ, we are branches on the vine. We merge 
with Christ and we receive His life. The Father now manages our growth and our pruning. He is the vine dresser. Verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now now you're going to observe a progression in this passage. From fruit to more fruit to much fruit. I mean, apparently the gardener here wants as much fruit as possible. He's not interested in the sheen of the leaves or the number of the sprouts or the fullness of the leaves. None of that interests the vine dresser. One thing he desires, and that's fruit. And thus, if a branch refuses to abide in the vine and refuses to produce fruit, what happens? The gardener cuts it off. Doesn't matter how pretty it looks. It doesn't matter how full of leaves it looks. If there's no fruit on the vine, he cuts it off. Now let me jump ahead to verse 7 and fill in the description of what's done with the discarded branch. We're told he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. And people respond to verse 7 by asking, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible teach eternal security? And my answer to that is always, absolutely. You are eternally secure as long as you are abiding in the vine. That's what Jesus says. If your faith is in Jesus, if you're resting in His righteousness and looking to His love, as long as you're chilling in His will and hanging on to His grace, then certainly you are set forever you are eternally secure. But if there's no fruit on your vine, if there's no fruit in your life, I mean, it doesn't matter whether the roots never took or whether the roots eventually dried up. You've died on the vine and you've ceased to bear fruit. And that's when the vine dresser promises to cut you off and to cast you into the fire. He's not going to allow sap to get wasted on a branch that refuses to bear fruit. Which brings up another question. What is fruit? And here's a good definition. Fruit is the byproduct of the Holy Spirit's activity in my life. This is fruit. And it, it, it takes different forms. Faith is, is often an evidence of God's work in my life. So faith can be a fruit. You know, the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians... Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, long-suffering, self-control, gentleness, goodness, so forth. These also are fruits of the Holy Spirit. Good works are fruits. The power to witness is a fruit. You see, as the sap of the Spirit, as the life of the Spirit pushes through our lives, buds appear, and then blossoms, and finally bulbs, and fruit begins to grow. The Holy Spirit pushes His power and His influence through our lives. And it produces righteousness. It produces fruit in a smorgasbord of ways. You know, it's interesting that grapes reach their maximum size a month or two before the harvest. They look ready at that point, but they're not. Oh, They have their size, but there's some things that are missing. And it's in the last few months that the sugar pushes up into the globe of the fruit. 
And it's the patience shown in that last month that allows the fruit to develop its sweetness and its softness. And these are the two characteristics of all spiritual fruit. Sweetness and softness. In fact, you look through the Gospels, and when Jesus worked, whatever He did, He left behind the aftertaste of sweetness and softness, of kindness and of tenderness. These are also marks of the Holy Spirit's influence in our lives. Sweet and soft. And it occurs especially as we mature. Even in the latter months of our maturity, that's when we become most sweet and most soft. Now, for a vine to reach its maximum yield, long before the harvest, in the winter months, it has to be pruned. In other words, to get the sap directly to the fruit and not waste fueling the foliage instead of the fruit, the plant has to get pruned back. The dead wood, the excess greenery, all has to be lopped off. This pruning takes place in the wintertime. Before the sap rises, at a time when the cold weather beats the sap down into the roots, that's when the vine dresser begins to cut back the branch. And boy, it must hurt. It looks painful. If the vineyard could talk, there would be awful screams and awful cries. It would sound like a funeral parlor during the pruning process. And when God prunes and disciplines us, at first, it too can, can be a painful experience. We can draw the wrong conclusion. We can think God's trying to kill us. You know, our identity gets connected to old habits. Unnecessary business, busyness can become a t- intoxicating and addictive in our lives. And so God has to prune us. He has to eliminate unnecessary preoccupations. He has to eliminate distractions. He has to narrow back down our focus so more of our energy goes to the bearing of real fruit. At times we get discouraged when we're being pruned. God, what are you doing? Why why is this happening? Why am I getting cut back? Why am I being taken down to size? But remember, He only prunes where He sees fruit because He wants more fruit. You know, the Rhine River Valley produces some of the best grapes and the most vintage wines in all the world. And during the winter, the valley is the coldest area in Germany. In fact, the valley becomes a wind tunnel that captures the cold northern air and channels it through the vineyards. There's a saying in in the Rhine Valley, the colder, the better. The colder, the winter weather, the tougher, the skins on the grapes, and the softer and the sweeter the fruit. Remember that the next time God sends you through a harsh season. Or God does a severe pruning in your life. Remember, there's one thing He's after. He's after more fruit. Now Jesus continues in verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. At harvest time when the branches are full of grapes, they also get dirty from the summer dust. It's in the wintertime, after they've been pruned and pinned to the wires, that they're washed by the winter rains. This is when they become clean. Now, Jesus is celebrating Passover here, so it's springtime. The vines are all clean. And for three and a half years, really, Jesus has been cleansing His disciples. He's been cleansing their minds with His Word. 
Now his atoning sacrifice is about to cause new life to rise up in them and begin to bear fruit. It's springtime in their spiritual lives, you might say. It's springtime for the church. Now all they need to do is to abide in the vine. And the sap of the Holy Spirit will rise up within them and spiritual fruit will begin to bud and blossom. Jesus tells them that. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. This word abide, it means to rest, to relax, to just chill. As the branch, you know, has, has all the branch has to do to bear fruit is to trust in its connection to the vine. Did you hear that? All the branch does is relies on its graft, its connection to the vine. It's the vine that supplies the life. The same is true in our relationship with God. So often we think we've got to strain. We've got to make it happen. No, we don't. It's only Jesus. Jesus supplies the life. All we have to do is trust in the connection so that the life can flow. I'll give you an illustration. It's like when I'm out playing golf. And I try to really... I'm playing with James. And James hits his ball like a million miles. And so I'm trying to keep up with James, you know. And so I really want to kill it. I really want to hit it a long way. But all I have to do is get that in my mind, that I've got to hit this ball a long way. And and I've sabotaged myself. I'm going to shank it. I'm going to hook it. I'm going to do something terrible. I'm going to embarrass myself. It never flies straight if I'm trying to hit it a long way. I learned a long time ago the key to golf is to let the club head do the work. It's just to bring the, the club right down to the ball and just meet it squarely. Just, just face the club right on the ball. Just rely on the connection. You don't have to put a lot of muscle into it. You don't have to put a lot of extra energy into it. Just let the ball meet the club and rely on that connection and it'll fly. And this is great advice for the Christian life. Hey, just meet the Savior. That's all you got to do. Just keep meeting Him day in and day out. Just stay attached. Don't overswing and try too hard in your own efforts. Don't underswing and let your faith become weak and atrophied. Just meet the Savior on a daily basis and let the Spirit do the work. Let the Spirit supply the power. You know, you don't see branches out there on a vine struggling to grow fruit. A branch has little to do with the producing of the fruit. Grapes happen as a result of the natural process when the vine is properly connected to the branch. And likewise, we grow by relying on our connection with Jesus. Well, he says to us again in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. You know, vine, a vine isn't pine. Worked real hard on that. A vine isn't pine. In, in other words, you can build stuff with pine wood. You can take it and, and carve it and build things. But with the vine wood, it's worthless for any other purpose than growing grapes. It's too weak and it's too knotted and it's too twisted to use as building material. I mean, all a vine is good for is bearing Fruit, and this is what Jesus says. Without me, you can do nothing. The branch by itself, you can do nothing. Verse 5, coupled with Luke chapter 1, verse 37, become the two most important verses in the Bible. 
On the one hand, we read here, without me, you can do nothing. But add the verse in Luke, with God, nothing will be impossible. That's the combination we need. Without him, you can do nothing. But with him, nothing's impossible. Well, verse 6 tells us, if anyone does not abide in me, in other words, you can start out in your faith, but not continue in your faith, then he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And notice abiding and asking here, they go hand in hand, don't they? If you abide, you can ask. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And and how do we abide in God's love? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, he says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You know, I love this uh, whole analogy of the vineyard produces joy. I love the taste of red grapes. Do you, like, do you like red grapes? It's my favorite snack food. You know, someone once called grapes God's candy. They're sweet. They're juicy. And here Jesus is saying we are most fulfilled when we're most fruitful. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus is going to prove this the very next day on the cross. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You see, servants are hired hands. They're just sort of hourly employees. They have no stake in the business. They're given a job to do, and when it's done, they just go home. They're they're not told any more than they need to know. But a friend was different. He's treated differently. He's he's made a co-owner. The owner confides in him. He has responsibilities for the success in the company. He's trusted. And here Jesus promotes his men from hourly workers to co-owners. From here on, Jesus is going to lean on his men. And they're going to enjoy an intimacy with Jesus. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, typically in those days, Jews chose their own rabbi. They would go out and choose their rabbi. But Jesus tells his disciples, no, I'm the one that chose you. You didn't choose me. And he tells them why. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You know, often we act surprised when we're persecuted, but why? I mean, the world didn't pat Jesus on the back, so why would we expect any better treatment ourselves? Verse 19, If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, this word world, 
It has some different meanings in Scripture. It can refer to just the earth, the terra firma, the dirt we stand on. It can refer to humanity. You know, we are the world. We're talking about all of humanity, all of people. Or like here, it denotes a culture. And in this case, a rebellious and ungodly spirit. The spirit of the age. In some ways, worldliness is ungodliness. They're they're synonyms. And the world can show up in your business or at the ball field or in your home. The world can even show up at church. You can run into the world at church, sadly. And here we're told the world loves its own. It hates to be opposed or corrected by righteous people. And thus the world grows fangs. And if you go against the world, the world is going to lash out at you. Just as it lashed out at Jesus. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Like master, like servant. If you follow Jesus, expect the world to treat you just like it treated Jesus. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know Him who sent me. Now throughout history, the church has always considered it an honor to be persecuted for His name's sake. When you're persecuted, do you consider it an honor? Happy are you when you're persecuted for Jesus' sake? When Baptist pastor Obadiah Holmes broke ranks with the State Church of England and held a prayer meeting in his home, he was ordered by the governor to be flogged. He was beaten so severely, the only way he could lie down was on his elbows and on his knees. And yet when the last lash ripped across his flesh, he shouted out, Gentlemen, you have whipped me with roses. Ladies, you know how you feel when you get roses. It's an honor. It's a privilege. It was as if his torture was his trophy. He received it all as an honor. I hope that when you're persecuted for his name's sake, you too consider it an honor. Well, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin He who hates me, hates my Father also. Despise and reject Jesus, and you hate the God of heaven. Don't tell me otherwise. Jesus said it. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. And here he quotes from two Psalms, Psalm 35, verse 19, and 69, verse 4. They hated me without a cause.